Official Dungeons and Dragons podcast. Yeah, we are officially welcoming Shelley Mazenoble to the yeah. mic. Yeah, how goes it? Great, Greg Tito. I am here with you on this fine Friday, as we are wont to do. It is a thing that happens a lot on Fridays. Everything happens on Fridays, right? Yeah, everything. Everything. Nothing happens any other day of the week. That is true. Yes. <laughs> it has been determined that, that Fridays are my favorite days. Dragon Talk Canon. We have uh, an amazing interview lined up for this episode. We are going to speak to Jody Hauser, writer Woo! extraordinaire. Yes. Yes. It'll be amazing. I uh, can't wait to pick her brain about all of the projects. Which are many. I know. There's a huge list here. That she's been working on. She's uh, uh, She does the Critical Role comic book, uh, as well as uh, a lot of other fun things in that realm, including Black Widow, Harley Quinn, and Poison Ivy, uh, all types of uh, I mean. uh, uh, amazing stories and characters that I want to learn more about. Yes, right? me too. Yes. I want to learn all the things. Star Trek Year 5, which is something that you're I know you're really that. interested in. I am. Totes. Totes, my goats. Because what happens in, in year five of the original series? We'll, you don't know. We'll find out. Because there was only three seasons. Oh, my God. Yeah. So they did a comic book series that was like year four. And then now they're like, well, yeah, what happens in year five? Because they explicitly say in the credits that it's a five-year mission. Right? Right. You've, you, you are a huge Trekkie, as I can tell. Yes. Yes. Uh, so that'll be fun. That'll be fun. Um, in the meantime, uh, there is a little adventure that has been arriving on shelves. Right. Baldur's Gate Descent into Avernus. Yay. It is a amazing trip down memory lane for those of you who played a lot of the Baldur's Gate video games uh, as well as you know maybe a few adventures out there like uh, Murder and Baldur's Gate. Uh, and I all- remember that. Yeah, I remember that. You mm-hmm. were you were we were working on it. Yeah, yeah. encounters. Right. D&D Encounters. It was a thing between yep. uh, the 4th and the 5th here. Um, and, uh, yeah, so you get to figure out what's happening in that city, immerse yourself in the not-so-happy-go-lucky town on the Sword Coast. It's such a beautiful location. It's it's so nice. I mean, if you can get past all, like, the murder and the <laughs> deception and the... Yuckiness. The mercenaries who are the police the force. View, though. I know. How I love the view? view. It's one of my favorite shows. Right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. So what? Who cares? That's uh, amazing, and uh, it has been, as we said, flying off the shelves. Uh, it is all kinds of bestsellers for. Uh, Amazon is on the list of top 100 books being sold. It keeps climbing all up books. the charts. All books, not just like D&D like all or books. all fantasy books or we are not nonfiction. Talking, right, not fantasy. Because <laughs> D&D uh, manuals get, also for some reason, categorized under nonfiction because they're like game manuals, but for whatever reason. Yeah, because they're, they're true. They're very true. They're um, but yeah, no, people are loving it, and uh, we've been seeing a lot of the community come out uh, showing pictures of you know what they've gotten and, and uh, being excited to jump into playing that, and we can't wait to hear more. So I'm excited. Uh, it's cool. It's out there. Uh, Battle, for ba- Battle for Baldur's Gate is also out there. I saw it in the wild. Yeah? So cute. Did you get to play it yesterday? Did you play it at all? Um, we did, actually. Yeah? Yeah. Who did you play? 
I played Oryx the Clever. Oh, you didn't play one of the new ones? No, they were. I decided to let um, Chris and Dan play the new ones. Oh, okay, cool. So they played uh, Jahira. Jahira, the shapeshifting druid. And? Minsk and Boo. A combo deal. A combo deal. I love the way those cards perfectly encapsulate what it is like to be Minsk. Yes. And Boo. And Boo. Yes. And a shapeshifter. And a shapeshifter. Which is kind of well. awesome. The wolf form. Yes. Is working for them? Totally. Yeah. And I love when she's in wolf and bear form, she still has her long, flowy red hair. As, as you do. It's so cool. Yeah. You, I, I think any shapeshifter should at least have red hair along with them. Yes. Right? You could shapeshift it into red hair. I'm shapeshifting right now into My red hair. My God. Oh. And a um, weird hand cramp. And a weird hand cramp, exactly. I'm going to shift that away. Blah. Yes. Please. I don't have a hand anymore. It's gone. We are also really excited about Rick and Morty versus oh Dungeons and Dragons 2, oh The Painscape, uh, which is uh, in comic book stores right now. What a week we are having. It is quite a week, or actually quite a, you Month. know, uh, a or, fall. or even a this season? year. A year? We'll be there for you in The Painscape. Um <laughs> Were you just singing Bon Jovi? No, I was singing the Friends theme. Oh, I didn't you're like, there. It hasn't been your week, your month, or even oh, your year. Oh, got it. Got it. I heard we'll be there for you. Yes. But it's really I'll be there for you. Well, bon I was Jovi. trying to say that Dungeons Dragons will be there for you. So will John Bon Jovi. <laughs> Is he going to be there for me? These five wor- words he swears to you. Is he going to be in the painscape? When you breathe, he wants to be the air for you. <laughs> <laughs> that feels wrong to throw me out there. <laughs> Why would John Bon Jovi be breathed in? I don't know. Yeah. His essence, the smell of Aquanet. I was just going to say his hair alone must smell very New Jersey-like. Oh, like a little like salty beach <laughs> mixed with Dracar Noir. Some, or an Aquanet. An Aquanet. A lot of hairspray. He doesn't have that much hair anymore. Well, yeah. It's, it happens. It happens after the 80s. Yeah, the, big, the big hair goes away. <laughs> Not um, mine. All of these references are in Rick and Morty versus Dungeons and Dragons too. The Spainscape. John Bon Jovi they is be. a featured character. <laughs> <laughs> Write him in, Jim Zub. Do it. Come on. Issue five. Get him in there. Uh, so this is a mini series. It's taking th- the groundwork that was laid by Jim and Patrick Rothfuss for the first series, uh, and uh, this time Jim and Troy Little, the artist, return to tell a new story of what happens in. I keep saying the word, the painscape. Yeah. Uh, There is a lot. It is many characters that have been made by Rick over the years come back and are wreak havoc, I guess, is is how we can can spin it. Do you know what would be cool? What would be cool? Is if you could play D&D like Rick was your dungeon master. Oh, my gosh. And there might actually be something like that coming out where you can do that. No. Yes. Are you serious? Yeah, it's Dungeons and Dragons versus Rick and Morty. Oh, my God. The boxed set tabletop role-playing game. You're the one who came up with that very long title, if I remember correctly. I think it was Nathan. Really? (laughs) I think. Mm. And I was like, that's it. We're done. That's it. Done and done. Yep. Stamped. Very cool. That's coming out November 19th. Yes. It will be... Uh, a everything you need to play Dungeons and Dragons using Rick and Morty characters, right? Yeah, even some really cool dice that you'll notice the colors Ooh. look very Rick and Morty. Is there some kind of pickle association happening? I mean, there's definitely pickles. I'm going to relish the moment. Relish it up. Yeah, y'all. Don't get in a pickle. Don't. <laughs> we can make all kinds there's of... There's lots of butts. Dill. Too. Oh, there's butts too? Mm-hmm. Yeah. We said something, and we were like, oh, how many butts are in it? And Nathan was like, well, not like real butts. And I said, 
Well, yeah, but they all signed releases. <laughs> <laughs> like I'm like nobody. You're don't worry. Like you're not gonna be able to identify. Like oh, that's Pelham's butt. Like it's just his butt. And he was like, what? what? Like wait a minute. Did you like- was Pelham a butt model for this? And I didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> you're like I need a butt reference for uh, for Troy Little, yes, the artist, uh, uh, to be able to yes. get the, yeah, the exact curvature of of the butt. This is how rumors get started. <laughs> Pelham's a butt model. Well, that's how he made his bones. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Promise it up. I love that that cue is ready to go. Yep. Uh, turn out the, the lights. Time to exfoliate. Um, so, yes. Uh, so we talked about all things fun Rick and Morty happening. The Essentials yeah. Kit is out. We were talking about that earlier. Saw how that we, in the wild, too. We played it. At our uh, fun little D&D outing, uh, and you should play it too. It's fun, and it's easy to jump into for new Dungeon Masters. It's got a lot yeah. of things in it that I found to be very useful and fun. Like a tactile, like having a, a magic item card yeah. in your hand yes. means a lot more. Yes. I really liked it. Yeah. But I, mean, I love the initiative numbers too. Yeah. Did you guys actually use those? We totally did. Oh, cool. Yeah. How did it feel? Great. Yeah. I like to look down and go, I'm number one. I'm number one. Yes. Nice. Uh, so that's in stores everywhere. Get it. Pretty much anywhere you can get Dungeons and Dragons stuff, you can now get it there, uh, including Target, but also at your local game store or at other places such as the Barnes and the Nobles or on the Amazons as we see that kit being ri- r- rising to the top and getting tons of sales out there too. So right. we're really excited uh, right. about how it has been. Build your baskets. Oops, sorry. Um, and uh, I'm only going to probably have to say this one more time, but as we were talking about Baldur's Gate Descent to Avernus, the Beetle and Grimm's Platinum Edition is also selling like hotcakes. Uh, so Ooh, I believe there's... There's only a limited number. There's only a limited They're only making a thousand of those. Uh, and I haven't really enjoyed the Waterdeep Dragon Heist Platinum Edition uh, over the last year. Uh, we've only had like 10 sessions, but they are doing really good and they're getting up there and I can't wait for this new uh, Platinum Edition to come out. I think people are going to really dig it. Um, the, Matthew Lillard has been uh, having these videos about the uh, soul coin that they put into a little bit of a different design than what we did for uh, D&D Live, but I actually, I think I really like it. There's people like a screaming really want. Like, face on it with like a soul. Like, ah, Whose soul is it? It's, well, it's whoever you want it to be. Yeah. Hopefully it's, it's, it's the Dungeon Master uses it and it's characters that uh, either the group had encountered in previous campaigns are now in the Nine Hells because uh, I just think that's amazing to be able to be like, you have the soul of this bad guy that you defeated, you know, uh, uh, years ago. Can you ever let them out? I mean, they're dead. Can you let the soul out of the coin? You could potentially, but why would you want to? Because I'm a bad it, person. Well, oh, I see. So you want to go into hell and like release yeah. some spirits? Yeah. Well, that sounds like a campaign you can run on your own using the Avernus um, uh, chapter in Baldur's Gate Descent to Avernus as a, as a gazetteer. You can, that's a whole fun thing. You can pick out parts and you can just use them uh, and incorporate them into your ongoing story. Do it, Shelley Mazanoble. You are the dungeon master. <laughs> You're like, I'm, I'm doing it. I saw your brain was doing like all kinds of yes. fun, like storytelling possibilities. So, um, sort of on that topic. Okay. Sort of. Sort of. Loosely. I have signed up for a new volunteer position at Quinn School. You have? Yes. So I am, along with my friend, 
going to be the person that organizes events for first grade. Nice. For like the families to all get to know each other. Yeah. So I, I mean, how cool would it be to have a D&D night? Done. Easy peasy. But I don't peasy. have any dungeon master. I have Bart. You have you. Oh. Oh, I you know, wanted to do then, it starting playing with kids. I know. Yeah. Well, I want kids and their parents. Right. Because I, st- I still think that's a, that's a really good way for people to get to know each other. Absolutely. So yeah. that's only two people though. How many do you need? I don't know. All right. Like I don't. I just need help, like talking through this. Like maybe the community has good ideas for me. All right. How do I do this? I want. Is six too young? I don't think so. No, okay. especially if you're doing uh, essentials kit or something. Yeah, you know, something that's, really simple. Like yeah. I mean, we could just. I'm sure I could find something in the DMs Guild too. That's more appropriate. Oh yeah. Age appropriate. Great idea. And then. So send me recommendations, people. Of what to you, run and also to how run to and run like how to organize a, this and how to get some dungeon masters because I don't – that's the part that you're always kind of missing. Yeah. Yeah. We need it. Well, and it I mean, would have to be like at a, at a location that's not part of the school because then I think people probably have to go through like volunteer training to even like step foot in the school uh, and interact with – Well, you can do it at game stores or other right. locations uh, yeah. in, in If I do West it at Seattle. game stores and I wonder if they have um, DMs. They might have some DMs, but they may not be DMs that you would want for six-year-olds, though. Right. So you want to make sure you specialize and have those. Like have a DM that pulls out descent to a furnace. Yeah, right, exactly. And then you unleash the soul from the soul coin, yes. and it eats your dad's face right in front And then, yeah, right, and then all of a sudden you have crying kids all around. Uh, but I think there's a way to make that, you know, I mean, it's all, every kid is different, every group is different, so you want to make sure you're uh, doing it. But it might not be the best icebreaker way to get to know people, if that's what you're thinking. Uh, so, yeah. Lots of possibilities there, and I hope the community does, in fact, get in touch with at Shelly Moo on Twitter yes. to give you suggestions. And it could just be, like, game night, and I could have Dungeon Mayhem, of course, oh, yeah. there, and, like, a, like other games. But, like, I think it would be cool to offer up some D&D, because I know there's other D&D people there. I've seen... I've seen ampersands. You've seen him? I have. Yeah. And I feel like some of these kids that Quinn is getting to know are just like ripe for the Dungeons and Dragons. I saw, speaking of uh, uh, seeing D&D out in the wild, I was at the first day of school or like the event before the first day of school uh, in West Seattle. And there was a, a dad, a man wearing one of those black... Dungeons and Dragons t-shirts that we have that we've only passed out. We've never sold or anything like that with the silver uh, silver lettering. And I was like, I don't know who that is. Where did they oh, get that t-shirt from? Uh, did I give it to them? And I didn't recognize the person. So I was trying to did you see, figure it out. Was he with someone else? That no, you it was almost recognize? like a somber from afar. So I didn't get a chance to like go up and talk to him. But uh, but it is. There are you know all these fans out in the wild uh, I know. that are really told you. loving and showing their when I wear my shirt pride. I get. A lot of people talking to me. It's for sure. It is expanding. And so that's a great idea. We'll do more uh, uh, integration stuff in schools. And there's people who are doing it now. So, yeah, let's figure it out. Help me. Help you. Help me. You know what else we need help with? Some lore that you may and or should know. Oh, yeah. Let's let's see if we can get some bings and bongs happening. Bing. Bong. Bing. Bing. Bong. Bong. Welcome to another segment of Lore You Should Know. I am Greg Tito, and I'm joined by... 
Chris Perkins. And we are going to talk about a topic that is involved with Eberron rising from the last war coming out November 19th. And that is the Draconic Prophecy or the Dragon mm-hmm. Prophecy? The Draconic Prophecy. The Draconic Prophecy. Yes. Um, it is written in Draconic? The language? Yes. 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 Uh, by dragons. What, by dragons themselves. No. They can actually hold pens and you know. uh, yeah. Well, I guess they yeah. can polymorph into, into humans. Yeah. <laughs> uh, some of them can. True. <laughs> the big, yes. they, I can tell I, I just about love the big crayon. Big crayon that their big claws are holding yeah. on to. Uh, all the draconic prophecy isn't. Sometimes it's it's uh, written in the stars. Ah. Yeah. So so what is the draconic process prophecy? Uh, so a little bit of lore. In the world of Eberron, there is this creation myth that Eberron was born out of three dragons. Sybaris, Eberron, and Kyber. Sybaris represents the sky and the shards and, you know, the, 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 the ring around... The firmament the, the, the above. Ring, the ring around the planet, because Eberron does have a, a ring. Um, oh, like a, like a Saturn's rings, like yeah, an actual yeah, ring around the planet. Yeah, actual okay. ring around the planet, but it's made out of these shards that are, according to the creation myth, the remnants of Sybaris, okay. who was destroyed um, by its sibling Kyber, who was then banished by the third dragon Eberron into the heart of the world, the underworld. And so Sybaris is the ring, Kyber is the underworld, Eberron is you know, wrapped itself around Kyber to hold Kyber prisoner and is the world itself. Got it. Eberron is called Eberron. Because it is of the body yes, of, of exactly. this dra- of the the tronic dra- Exactly. God. While Sybaris is above and Kyber is within. Um, so the dragons that inhabit this planet, the real dragons, mm-hmm. the modern day ones, originate from a continent on the planet called Arganesson. Arganesson. Which few humans ever have the pleasure or, or, or displeasure, displeasure, yeah. more more likely yeah. of of visiting. It is in the southern hemisphere of the planet. It is remote. It's fairly inhospitable. It's unsettled, and dragons live there all over the place. It's big, real big. And and are they uh, chromatic dragons? Chromatic and metallics. Ah, okay, yes. good and possibly other types too, which we don't really talk much about. Gem, possibly. <laughs> Why not? We'll call them Jim. Jim dragons. Jim dragons? <laughs> like G Y M? Like they're just buff and spend all day mm, yeah. ooh, pumping iron. Yeah. Okay, I like that. Well, we'll, we'll, yeah, we'll put it in. Sounds uh, good. Okay, so there's different uh, metallic and chromatic and cavorting gym dragons, yes. and Jim dragons cavorting on this remote continent. And uh, the reason why they kind of coexist is because written in the stars, written in the rocks, written in everything that Sybaris, Kyber, and Eberron ever touched or breathed on are these indicators of what they intended for their you know, great and glorious future and the future of all dragonkind. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the dragons are fixated on this idea of finding figuring out what the prophecy is, what it says, and what it means. And in terms of the actual game, it's it's kind of left a little fast and loose. You can find things of the draconic prophecy etched into a stone that might be lodged in some remote forest, like the Eldine Reaches or whatever. You might find it in a cave 
written on the walls. You may find it inscribed upon the scales of an ancient petrified dragon that was buried under an avalanche in the mountains of the Marorholtz. The prophecy is scattered across the world. And what the dragons do is, through their agents, or sometimes on their own, go out and find these fragments. And they're essentially putting, putting together a puzzle and trying to find... The, but the pieces of this jigsaw puzzle are scattered all over the world. So they're going out looking and bringing them back and sort of putting them all together and individually, because they're competitive, trying mm-hmm. to figure out what is the prophecy, what is the prophecy's end game? What is it steering us toward? What is it warning us about? And how can we manipulate events in the world around us to make the prophecy come true? Because if it comes true, we're going to get our just rewards. We're going to get our payoff. We're going to get everything. We're going to know why we were placed on this world, why we were left here. All of that will be made clear when the prophecy is known in its entirety. And some dragons have large pieces of this prophecy that they've amassed over the years because they live you know, thousands of years. So, yeah. And they, this is an obsession with them. They spend all of their time trying to piece the prophecy together and then interpret it. And sometimes the interpretations are, in order for us to get what we want, the king of Breland must die. But he must die by the hand of, he must die by the crystal hand of the one without a son. You know, like it's all kind of riddle-like. Yeah. And so what they do is these dragons interpret those mystic little phrases and then try to make, thing, make them happen, make the prophecy come true so that the next stitch of the prophecy can come true. Mm-hmm. And so they orchestrate behind the scenes all kinds of covert operations designed to make things happen. They can't just kill the king of Breland if the prophecy tells them to because the prophecy also tells them how the king must die. I see. And it's not getting eaten by a dragon. They've got to shape events so that the king dies the way the prophecy says he must. So they're just trying to find that guy with the crystal hand. Exactly. And then, okay, now you've got to kill this, this king. And he's like, the, what? I just have a crystal hand. And they may not even come to that guy directly. They just might put that guy in a room with the king. <laughs> and you hope, know what I mean? The, and hope, hope the that, prophecy. Exactly. So... In terms of play, what happens is the characters are just going on their adventures and doing all the things that adventurers do in the world of Eberron. But they might stumble upon a benefactor who says, we've got to find this crystal falcon statue or we've got to find – we've got to go to this planar observatory that was damaged during the last war and repair it and get it working again. And you're like, why? Oh, well, because of this reason. But there's another reason that maybe they're working for a dragon – who knows that the planar observatory has to be operational because they have to know where this star is going to be in the sky on a certain time and place to sort of get a pointer to something else that's going to do this thing, that's going to do this thing over here. and that thing. So they're all this of this web of It's this events. web of orchestrated events that are happening behind the scenes. And eventually in your campaign, the characters are probably going to get a whiff that there's an external force that's sort of puppeteering a lot of what's going on in the world. Who is that? Why are they doing it? And can we meet these meddlers? Yeah. And then you discover, oh my God, it's a red dragon or it's a silver dragon or whatever. Uh, so that's what the prophecy is. Basically, it's a, it's a thing that the dragons know about that they each interpret in their own way and that they're searching for more information of while also pushing events around the world in play to make things happen. How do they know... 
uh, the Dragons, how do they know it will be net positive for them? Like, has it been said that, that if this comes true, all of your answers will be told? Oh, it, it has to be, right? No. Why, why put them through this game if there's no grand prize? Who the do end? they think set the game? Eberron? The, the, their their yeah, god? They're, yeah, the, 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 the creation dragons basically laid all these things out okay. for them. All three of them? Or... Uh, if you ask a different dragon, might might say one, the other, or all three. Mm. Um, but it's, but, but, it, but it's it's this sense of entitlement. Like this is this is why we were put on the planet. This is what we have to do. And besides, what else are we going to do? Eat all the humans? <laughs> if we eat all the humans, the prophecy says bad things will happen. So I guess we shouldn't do that. Okay, you know. So so the, the, you almost have to it's, yeah. believe under uh, under all this. There's this. There's right. there's a faith. Yeah, there is a faith. Um, or you could just call it an obsession. Mm. It, it may be an unhealthy obsession that they've put more stock in this than is really necessary. It could be a cosmic joke. But the dragons don't believe that something this intricate can be anything but good for them. And I assume we leave this open-ended for players and dungeon masters. There's, there's, that's the idea. Is it written anywhere that the, that's no. what the dragon prophecy means? No. So we, it's designed so that you can basically sculpt your own portion of the dragon prophecy and make it pertinent to the events in the moment. Because the other thing about the dragon prophecy is it's not meant to play out in a year or three years or ten years. It's, it's a millennia's game yeah, it's that the aeons. dragons are playing. Right. And, you know, the dragon – old, really old dragons that are close to death might actually take less of an interest in the draconic prophecy because they realize it probably won't get solved in their lifetime. But the young ones – are avaricious about trying to pursue it mm. and see it to its conclusion. It's it's kind of like, um, have you ever watched the movie? It's a mad, 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 mad world. Uh, parts of it, but it's never a, the whole it's thing. Like, I think it's a seven, movie from the 70s. Yeah, with Basically, all the different movie stars. Trying to, different movie stars, and they're all trying to hunt for this treasure that they're told is buried under the big W. And so it's this cross-country trek following clues to try to figure out where the treasure is buried, and the first one that gets there gets the prize. And what you realize in the movie, of course, is it's a bit of a... It's a mislead. Yeah. And uh, it, it, they don't get what they want. Um, it, it, there might be some of that element to it too. But the pursuit is worth it in their mind and the, the potential glory slash payoff, maybe I'll rise to a god, who knows, kind of thing is, is too, too much of a lure for a greedy dragon to resist. Are there, is, is, are there pieces... Uh, magical in some way? Like, is there some way to verify that they are real? Or, or could uh, there be another question. force like, that's, is, that's manipulating? Is, authentic? Is, is it authentic prophecy or not? Yes. It's funny you should say that. Um, you can't tell. And there are forces who are seeding bogus prophecy stuff, either to keep the dragons from meddling in their business, or um, to potentially get the dragons to do something that will destroy the world by mistake. Uh, okay. So the forces that I'm talking about are the Lords of Dust, mm. um, who are fiends, mainly Rakshasas, that are trapped in the world and serving these overlords, these demonic beings that have been trapped in various ways. Mm. Um, uh, and and some of this is talked about in Rising from the Last War. But that sounds like another, another topic yeah, to delve into. Exactly. So they are... To benefit their overlords and to free them, they've got to make sure that the Draconic Prophecy doesn't 
doesn't get fulfilled. Doesn't get fulfilled. Uh, so they're misdirecting or, yeah. and, and trying yeah. to so, manipulate this so, that way. Yeah, it's more intrigue. For, for an, for an intrigue-laced game, we have even another layer of intrigue, this, this layer that characters might not even know that they're a part of this much bigger meta story. Very interesting. And yeah. I love how it's... You can compare it to the the uh, society that's left after the last war, where mm-hmm. like we don't know what is happening and where it is going on, but there are forces right. out there who are trying to find yes. out more and manipulate yes. for their own advantage, whatever is yeah. short term or long term. Yes. One of the great things that this draconic prophecy does is it allows dragons to exist in the world while simultaneously giving a an explanation for why they just don't run roughshod over everybody and take over the entire place. Ah, because the prophecy says. Yeah, because the prophecy says they have to do things a certain way. Yeah. Um, and so you get your dragons, but they're, they're sort of background shady figures mm. as opposed to sitting on thrones and doing what they could be doing. Yeah, very fascinating. Yeah. Um, when are the uh, Dust Brothers going to release their <laughs> album next? That's what I want to know. <laughs> no, sorry, the Lords of Dust Lords Brothers. Lords of Dust Brothers, yeah. <laughs> I, want, I want a techno remix uh, yeah, of, yeah. Our, of the, the Sharn. What kind of music would Rock Shasas make? Oh, very eclectic, yeah. but still got like a they danceable beat to it. They play the weird way because their hands are backwards, right? <laughs> oh, That's so weird. Yeah. So they can do the, yeah. the multi-neck. The multi- yeah. <laughs> very fascinating. Uh, well, thank you very much. Lots of stuff there to delve into, and hopefully yes. people will do that when Eberron Rising from the Last War uh, comes out on November 19th. Why do Rakshasas have backwards hand would be a good future Laurie Should Know topic. Yeah, we're putting it on the list. All right. Yes, I love it. Awesome. Well, Always. thanks a lot, Chris. Uh, if people want to uh, ask you questions, how can they do so? I am on Eberron at <laughs> chrisperkinsdnd.com. You are the dragon that is writing the draconic at, prophecy yeah. for I'm everyone. I'm on Twitter at chrisperkinsdnd. Excellent. Well, thank you very much. Uh, We'll be back with some more fun lore next week. Bye-bye. That was a really good uh, lore segment that I know so many more things about Eberron and beyond. Right. Thank you, Chris Perkins, for elucidating these topics into our brains. Wow. I know. Good word. 50 cent word. I'd like it. You know who else has really got a lot of words? Could it be our next guest? Jody Hauser! Yeah! Let's call her up and have some more words at us into our brains, please. Yes. All right. Jody Hauser on the line. Hello. Hello, I, I really like that photo. I look so serious and very, self-important. Very writerly. I like it. <laughs> it's like you're pondering your next play. That's what it yeah, looks but like. That was actually an outfit I put together for a karaoke brunch. So. Nice. Oh, close. Uh, karaoke brunch. I know, that sounds amazing. I want to go to a karaoke brunch. Yeah. Uh, it, it was very lovely. They do bottomless mimosas until 4 p.m. So uh, there's a lot of comics folks who like to go every few weekends and, you know, sing some songs and have some mimosas and good food and it's a good and time. And karaoke. I never actually associated karaoke with anything other than really late at night. Right. Yeah. So it's nice to have it in the morning where you're not, you know, where you actually can probably perform a little bit better. But also nice to have bottomless mimosas. That is true. Yes. <laughs> what is your song of choice, Jody? 
Uh, I mean, I have an extensive song list because I've been doing karaoke for pretty much forever. But my number one best all time song is a lot of miles black velvet. I don't know if I know that song either. Can you sing it for us? (laughs) Let's do some karaoke. That's awesome. It's probably about as much as you can I do sing without getting in legal issues. So. <laughs> well, well done oh, keeping do that under that. six seven seconds or whatever it needs to be. Very good. My <laughs> wife always does uh, "Only the Lonely" by the Motels. Oh, that's really? One of her go-tos. Oh, that's a good choice. Yeah, I don't can, do any. She can rock it out, uh, and then also Pat Benatar. Anything like in the the eighties? Oh, Pat Benatar. Yeah, those those power ballad milieu is is her is her jam. Uh, I like power ballads because you're not really expected Mm -mm. to dance during them too much, um, but they still, you know, sort of get the room going. Right. Sway. You can sway. You can sway a little bit. I like the sway. I'm very good at swaying. I'm not so good at dancing. (laughs) I think that I would rather dungeon master than do karaoke. Really? Yes. Wow. That's bold. I just can't sing. I can't either, but you got to, you know, so, I mean, not the, this is the karaoke podcast, but <laughs> you have to <laughs> jump into things that you can perform. So I would do like the talk singing ones, yeah, like, like, a, like, like a They like Might a, Be Giants a or a Violent Femmes are, are, are good standbys oh, for yeah. me. Yeah. So one of, one of my dreams is to run a karaoke RPG session where oh. to, instead of rolling dice, you have to sing a song that's somehow relevant to the action you're trying to take. Like an actual song or do you have to make up the song? Like an actual song, like because I know there's like karaoke machines that sort of rate your score of how you sing. So it's like you have to get above a certain score based on the difficulty. I've put like way too much thought into this for something that may never happen. But that sounds well for for those who can carry a tune and actually do the right pitches. That sounds uh, fun. But for me and Shelly, I think it'd be like, Uh, oh, I got plans that day. Sorry. Can't go, but it so- sounds like it. Um, that would be really fun to watch. Right, right. I am all in on that. So, uh, getting this into uh, when, when did you start playing Dungeons and Dragons, and uh, you know, start rolling dice? Uh, well, I, I've been rolling dice a lot longer than I've been playing D and D. I actually came a little bit late to D and D. I got my start with more like horror and sci-fi RPGs because I think that was just more what my friends group was into. Nice. But I, I definitely was one of the people who learned most of the rules of Fifth Edition from watching Critical Role. Ooh. But did you? Uh, how did how did you get involved with uh, that fandom? Where you just kind of found it and started watching it, or or what? Uh, well, no, it's actually kind of funny. I started watching Critical Role as research because I was on a different live stream RPG show that was a homebrew sci-fi game called Vast. And mm. I played RPGs for a long time, but I hadn't done it on live stream. And that's kind of a different thing in a way. You know, it's like there's the performance aspect for an audience rather than just your friends. And I, you know, we did our first episode. And I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing here. I don't know where I should be looking. Do I look at the camera? Do I sort of cheat toward the camera? Do I pretend the camera isn't there? So I figured, you know, I I knew of Critical Role at that point. I just hadn't really gotten into it yet. And I was like, well, let me see how the professionals do it, because obviously whatever they're doing, they're doing it right. Uh, so I jumped in at an episode, uh, like toward the end of an episode, a character had just died. Everyone was crying. I felt deeply 
uncomfortable because I had no context. I didn't know if they were crying for real or just in character. <laughs> so that's when I sort of decided to go back and start from the beginning. <laughs> I, I sort of described it as like showing up to a party where you don't know anyone and then find out it's a funeral. Oh, no. Oh, yeah, that's kind of exactly what happened. Yeah. Yeah, so it's yeah, it's it's one of those things where it's it's great storytelling, but if you just sort of jump in like toward the end of an episode with a whole lot of stuff going on, you you can get a little lost in, you know, just again, the context was sort of what I was missing at that point. But yeah, so I started watching to see how the pros did it, and then I just kept watching it cuz they're all amazing uh role players and performers and and now I write their comic. <laughs> That's so cool. Yeah. So how did that how did that leap happen? Uh, that happened in part because doing licensed comics has kind of been my thing since my career started. Uh, I started working on Orphan Black, which was my first series, uh, and that's sort of how I made a name for myself. So just a lot of the projects I've been offered over the course of my career have been licensed books. And I've also done a bit of work for Dark Horse. Uh, I've been writing the Stranger Things comics over there, which, of course, also have a nice little D&D tie-in. Right. And I was in the office last fall, the same time that Matt Mercer was, and I'd know him, I've known him uh, for a bit. We were on a Doctor Who RPG show a little bit together. Uh, so, you know, conversations sort of went in a obvious direction, and... Uh, then when they needed a writer for the second arc of the Vox Machina Origins, they gave me a call. That's so cool. That is amazing. Yeah. So you've been a storyteller for, for a long time. You, uh, did you always want to write and tell stories? And how did you get there before, before you went off to college? Um, I, I joke I started writing when I was seven, and <laughs> I started seriously when I was eight. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it, yeah, it was third grade. I decided I wanted to be a writer in part because uh, my teacher at the time told me I was good at it. No one had ever really told me I was good at anything before. And, you know, when you're eight, you're like, oh, I guess that's what I should do when I grow up then because I'm good at it. Uh-huh. And no one really told me, maybe, no, you shouldn't do that. So <laughs> my <laughs> parents were my parents were nicely supportive, although they did encourage me to make sure I had a way to earn money, too, and, you know, not starve to death. But, uh, yeah, advice. for the most part, I just found I like doing it. People seemed to think I was good at it. So I just plugged away in that direction, you know, from age eight on. That's so cool. And you went to uh, Emerson College in Boston. Yes, uh, that, I got my MFA there uh, in creative writing. And I did my undergrad at University of Miami oh, okay. with a English creative writing uh, major because they didn't have a straight creative writing major. You had to pick an English degree with a focus in creative writing. Did you grow up near Miami, or why did you choose Miami? Uh, my family moved to South Florida when I was in high school, and they offered me a really good scholarship. Oh, <laughs> so, nice. That's two excellent reasons. Where it, was it, a, it was a financial thing more than anything. Right. Where in South Florida? Did you grow up? Uh, Broward County. Uh, we lived in Weston, although I think when we moved there, it hadn't been named yet. So oh. it, we moved to unincorporated Fort Lauderdale, oh. which is a really long thing to write on an address. Yes. <laughs> I spend a lot of time in Jupiter, Florida. In the, oh, okay. In the spring and in the around the holidays. That's where my dad yeah. has a, a place. But I've, I've been in L.A. a while now, so that's it's probably the place that uh, feels the most home for me, like basically my whole adulthood. 
Did you uh, like Boston? Because I, I, I grew up in Connecticut, and Emerson was really one of the first colleges that I remember visiting as potentially wanting to go to for undergrad. Um, and uh, I, I fell in love with it being just like in the middle of the city there. Oh, yeah, I loved Boston. Um, I didn't actually live super close to Emerson when I was going there, so I had to take uh, the B line on the green line out, which is sort of the slowest of all the T lines. <laughs> but, like, just the fact that it's so old and it's so walkable, it's sort of like this weird, like, magic little city. Um, but, yeah, I loved I loved living there, even though I ended up walking around in the midst of every blizzard that happened <laughs> in the few years I lived there somehow. Just really bad luck. Yeah. Uh, but that Boston Commons is, looks beautiful, whether it's, you know, uh, covered by snow or not. Oh, yeah. I was I was just back in Boston for uh, Fan Expo Boston last month, actually. And I went back to uh, the public gardens in Boston Commons and did some writing, despite it being like 90 degrees out. <laughs> uh, yeah. The humidity and the snow. Don't miss. Yeah. No, Don't miss that about the East Coast. <laughs> It was kind of cool to be like writing, doing professional paying writing in the shadow of the buildings where I went to school to study to do just that. So, yeah, that's really cool. cool. So going back a a little to when you were watching Critical Role for research and but then something must have triggered that you were like, hey, I think I might want to start playing D&D. Well, yeah. And I, I mean, I, I've always loved RPGs as long as I've been playing them. And the fact that I hadn't played D&D was always just like a little weird because that's where <laughs> it started. Right. Yeah. Uh, so I, I finally found groups to jump in for like little like short sessions or one shots. Uh, and then uh, I've re- fairly recently started on what seems to hopefully be an ongoing campaign. We've, you know, it's the typical we're all busy adults and trying to plan when we can all get together is a problem sort of thing <laughs> that plagues, I think, all D&D players. It does, yes. indeed. Yeah. Life often gets in the way. <laughs> That's good. So what kind of character are you playing in this campaign? Uh, right now I'm playing a... Uh, uh, rogue uh, Fire Genasi, oh. uh, who has a mysterious background that her only friend uh, doesn't actually know yet. And I went with Arcane Trickster, so you know there's the inherent Fire Genasi magic, and then a couple spells here and there. So uh, she she's a fun character. I might end up multi-classing into Bard because that sort of fits with her background. She grew up in a circus, so. Oh, I like yeah, that. there's a lot of lot of fun stuff to do there, and I think uh, I think we're at level six now. So, and we started at level one. So, and nobody we, knows the secret so far. Nobody knows the secret. She was a just a her best friend's a warlock sworn to uh, fey dream folk, and just as she was about to tell uh, her best friend uh, her secret, he got eaten by his familiar and disappeared for six months. He got eaten by his familiar? <laughs> yeah. What was yeah, his just familiar? Got by, like a magical cat thingy. Oh. Just, just okay. ate them all up. And, this is why I don't and like then, cats. Uh, and then she had to run their business for six months and, like, pretend to be him, which, she, you know, she likes – you know, uh, shifting into other people, but it gets tiring after a while. So then when he finally showed back up, she was more mad than uh, happy for a bit and didn't tell him her secret yet. (laughs) So is this a secret that you, the player, have had since you first conceived of this character or did did it come to you a little later in the campaign? 
Oh, okay. So I, I, let me backtrack a bit and say how this campaign started, because that's the only way to make it make sense. Uh, so there is a brewery in Anaheim called Bottle Logic, and they do an event every year called Week of Logic. And this year was sort of like D&D-esque themed. And so when a group of us went down to pick up our little uh, journals for the event, which they called Quest Journals for this year, uh, one of our friends who DMs was like, hey, what if we just do a D&D campaign throughout the whole week? Because we're going to have to be driving from L.A. to Anaheim every day. We're going to be hanging around in lines waiting to get beer. We're going to be grabbing dinner. Uh, so we thought that was a great idea. So we basically played a full campaign every day over the course of a week. So it was about halfway through the week I figured out, oh, wait, my character has this crazy backstory, actually. That's awesome. I like it. Yeah. Yes. We went up about four or five levels just in one week, but we, you know, it was about like three or four hours of play every day. And then that sort of, it sort of tail ended into WonderCon because this was back in March. Uh, So then we were already down in Anaheim for the last few days and a lot of our friends were. So we had like a lot of friends sort of popping in and out of the campaign over the week. And we had sort of like a big finale with all the folks who were in town for WonderCon. Oh, that's fun. I love but I yeah, love so being able it, to concentrate that much D and D play into I know, one it's week. D and D immersive. I love it. So it's 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 sort of wrapped with uh, uh, the other regular player getting eaten by his familiar, and we were all like, "But wait, we love these characters. We want to play more with them." So we've since decided we will continue the campaign, but only in breweries. So it's whenever we can all get together and <laughs> hit up local breweries and sit there and get like a flight of beers to try and roll dice. I think that that. Kind of sounds like the most perfect D and D game ever. Yeah, the Brew Crew. I want to do that. I like it. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, that's been super fun. Are these are the other players also writers? Uh, uh our tra- our DM is uh, named Trevor Adams, and he's an actor. And then uh, the other main player is Jackson Lansing, who is a fellow comics writer. But I actually met him through RPG, so he's one of my best RPG buddies, as well as one of the people I know best in comics. So uh, we were talking about this, uh, you know, as we were preparing for this interview. Uh, I am not a comics. Fan. Like, I definitely had never had that growing up. And uh, now in uh, interacting with a lot of comics writers as well as stuff that's involved with Dungeons & Dragons, I'm reading a lot more. And I'm noticing how there's such a, you know, comparison between, you know, screenwriting, playwriting, and, and comic book writing. I never really kind of put those two together. And, I'm, and, and I, I love that you are, you know, got your, your finger in all those, those different type of writing formats out there and maybe you could talk a little bit about how they they interact in in your head okay it's actually pretty interesting because i went to school primarily for screenwriting and also did playwriting while i was there and won an award uh doing that uh thank you uh it was actually cool to because we did a production of the play so i got to work with the actors and what was the play uh, have a proper writing product uh it was called uh goodbye dolly and it was about uh, two sort of weird high school kids who become friends, but their mothers end up going to war because one is a doll maker and the other is a doll collector. So it's like the, these two kids trying to navigate a new friendship in the midst of their family's insanity, pretty Interesting. much. Interesting. That sounds yeah. fun. It was, it was a lot of fun. Very, very satirical. But uh, yeah, so that was sort of my background in writing before I moved to L.A., 
And then uh, while I was in the midst of trying to launch a screenwriting career, you know, like everyone in L.A., <laughs> I started doing web comics and then I got into writing for comic anthologies. And then I started getting work from actual publishers. And then I somehow had a comics career in the midst of uh, trying to build a screenwriting career. But the, the interesting thing was for me, despite having studied screenwriting and playwriting and other forms of writing, figuring out how to write comics on my own was really difficult because I think there's a lot of uh, mindsets you have coming in with, say, a screenwriting background where you're used to having, you know, sound and movement and things that you don't have in comics. So I really had to almost rewire my brain to think in terms of, you know, freeze frames, still images. Uh, you know, there's limited actions you can show in a panel. You have to focus on the page turns and what happens you know, when you turn the page and save the surprises for them. So yeah. a lot of like very sort of technical comic specific things I had to learn along the way. And the thing that actually weirdly helped me the most was to think of comics as sort of a somewhere in between screenwriting and poetry, because poetry is so much about placement and where lines end and limited use of space. So I think that flows very well into comics. That's fascinating. I don't think I ever would have you know, connected comic book writing with poetry, but you're right in especially freeform and, and, you know, EE coming style thing where like, you know, where the placement of words are on a page have as much importance as the words themselves. Um, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You don't have and, a lot and, of room for other like narrative or anything in a comic. So the words have to, they have to mean something. Yeah. Every one of them. And again, you know, you're collaborating in comics. So as much as you can let, the art tell the story. I, I mean, that's one of my favorite things with the lettering pass is when you go through and you've gotten the art and you're comparing the art with the script before it actually gets lettered by the letterer. When you find there are moments, you can just take out words because the art says it all. You don't need to repeat it in dialogue or in captions or whatever. Yeah. How does that work then with the, do you send your rough draft of the actual dialogue to the illustrator and then they take it from, then they, you kind of go back and forth from there? Uh, well, most of my projects are what we would call work for hire, which is like DC or Marvel or Dark Horse hires me to work on a property that they either own or they're licensing from the owner. So everything sort of goes through the editor as the central connection point for the project. So I basically will send, you know, a pitch or an outline to the editor to say what the story is going to be. And then I tend to write in what we call full script. So it'll be like page one, panel one. This is what happens. This is what people say. Panel two and so on and so forth. So it's, it's basically a very specialized type of script writing. Mm -hmm. So, you know, my, like you would uh, write a screenplay for a movie, you're writing a script for a comic. But instead of having it be for directors and actors, it's for the artists and the colorist and the letterer and the editor. So it's a smaller team uh, and you can get a little more specific with your writing, especially once it's an artist, you know, and have worked with for a while. You can, you know, you can put in a lot of shorthand there. But uh, yeah, it's I generally write full script and then send that to the editor. The editor will let me know if I need to make revisions you know, a, a project like Critical Role, it'll get sent to the Critical Role folks and we'll get their notes uh, to make sure it's, you know, fitting what they want for the characters and the property. And then it'll go to the artist. So with the Critical Role comic in particular, like, are you like what's how much creative freedom do you have with story? Or is it like here's the story. Now you get to 
map it out in comic book form or do you actually have some creative freedom to come up with some of that narrative? I mean, for this point, since it's the it's the Vox Machina Origins and it's the game that they've already played, I basically have a synopsis of the events of the game. Uh, so, and I'm working with that. So basically all the dialogue is original. You know, I'm tweaking uh, events where they need to be tweaked to work in the comic book format. But I basically have the skeleton of the game that they played to work from. But I imagine, like, there's going to be so much more content than what you can actually fit in a comic. So how do you, what's your editing process like even when you're just initially laying that out? I mean, that, that's, that's something I've had to do a lot because I've done adaptations for movies and books. Uh, so it really is just having a sort of a uh, feel for the comics medium and how to best tell the story there and being able to whittle it down. Uh, one of the classes I took in grad school was called Novel into Film. And even though that's not the specific type of adaptation that I do, it was very useful just in studying how adaptations work. And the thing that always stuck with me from our very first class, the professor said, when you're adapting a novel into a film, your most important job is to make a good film. So it always has to be about telling the story in the medium you're working with First and foremost, like what came before is important, obviously. And like I said, it's sort of the spine, the backbone of what you're doing. But you have to make sure it works in a comic. Otherwise, there's not really a point in what you're doing. I can't wait for colleges now to start having classes that are like, live stream RPG show into comics. (laughs) 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 Got a DM in front of a camera. (laughs) It is. I mean, the... The idea of like like when you're talking about the critical role comic, I can't help but think, wouldn't it be cool? Like actually Kate Welch and I were talking about this right before. When we were talking about our D and D game that we played yesterday, we were in tears laughing about it because it was the funniest, most amazing, most brilliant piece of two hour content that we've ever experienced. Wow. That says a lot. But would it be that for you, Greg, if I told you about our game? Are you like I wasn't there, so I don't care. It's not funny. Well, that's the job, right? That's what makes it really hard because I think it's, uh, it, I mean, taking something that is a shared experience between yes. you know, five or six people and translating it into a series of images on a, on yes. a, on a comic book, but I, I mean, think, that's hard. Like, I want uh, to see a comic book of our <laughs> well, D&D game. We should commission Joe. Yes. <laughs> I am, like, well, as you're talking, I'm like, oh, my God. It would be really fun to see, like, Jody's interpretation of when my character unstrapped the Gnome King from her baby Bjorn and threw it at the Mimic and killed <laughs> them both. <laughs> and then wine, I mean, like, that's... exploded all over all of us. <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, that's, that's something it would be fun gold. to see an artist draw, for sure. Yes. Yes, it would. And we had a lot of artists who were playing with us, too. So that, I always am fascinated by the doodles and things that they do about scenes of things that have just happened. Oh, yeah. And they're like, oh, yeah, no, here's the character what, that you were just describing, right? Interest. So it's, it's all there. It's just, it's, I, I think it's an amazing uh, work that you've been doing, Jody, is trying to figure out what is the most important and vital yeah. part to, to bring forth. And I think with something like Critical Role, I actually have an advantage over some of the other things I've worked on because there's just so many hours of content. Like it's so easy to go in and get the voices of the characters because there's just so many examples. Whereas if you're pulling from, say, a novel and you're adapting that, you know, you might not even have heard the character's voice before. And for me, 
who works more from, uh, you know, a lot of film and TV and streaming content, like being able to hear the voice when I'm writing is how I can tell if I'm, you know, nailing the character or not. Yeah. Yeah. And how um, have you been able to, or, or if you have been able to use your work for, for comic books and other things, have, has it changed the way you approach um, character and how you portray them when you're, when you're playing with your friends? I mean, to an extent, yeah, there's definitely uh, character arcs I've done in RPGs where I'm pulling from stuff I got to write or honestly just like stuff I love reading. But I I honestly think it works the other way a bit better. There's a lot of writers I know who love playing RPGs because it's really a chance to sort of drill down into one specific character, a way we don't normally get to do when we're writing Mm. because, you know, you have to focus on the bigger picture and all the characters and just getting to do this like very specific detailed character work, I think just makes us better when we're crafting characters in whatever medium we're writing in. Does that ever get frustrating for you as a writer when uh, you see another player and you're like, oh man, it would be so much better if you said this or, or, or you know, pulled on this plot thread that you're not pulling on and the dungeon master clearly wants you to pull on. Why aren't you doing it? Oh uh, yeah, but I miss those sometimes myself. So <laughs> I definitely can't like, call on people i've i've definitely gone back and listened to recordings of some of our sessions where where i you know recorded it and took notes later on where i'm just like why didn't i like the the dm was like looking at me and being like do the thing and i didn't do the thing you know it's like in in retrospect everything's always clear hindsight 2020 yeah but yeah i mean i think when you're really in the moment if you're just sort of having fun and playing it's like that sort of critical side of your brain you want it, you don't want it to be there and being obnoxious about the way other people are playing because you just want everyone to be having fun that's true i mean i think that's freeing uh for a lot of writers too right to be able to improv out your your uh story rather than having to um make sure it all interacts perfectly with all the other little parts that you've got going on and it's all it's also freeing especially when you have a really good dm that you're letting them take a share of the storytelling, you know, it's not all you. Cause so, so much of what we do is just sitting alone in a room typing away at a keyboard. So, you know, being able to get together with other people and tell a story and it's, you know, even if it's, uh, you know, like a live stream thing, it's still just there to be fun. Yeah. That's good. I think D and D is actually very good for writers for a number of reasons, but especially for what you just said. So much of, of what you do is alone in your own head. And it's just good to be able to be around other people and especially other creative people. And you can I, yeah, try I mean, out tend, a lot of your material. I tend to think of it as an opportunity for a co- you know collaborative creative exercise as well as social time. So, you know, it sort of pulls double duty when you're sitting around gaming with your friends. Mm-hmm. And especially, you know, since a lot of my friends I play with are writers. Yeah, do you do you think do you see yourself ever maybe trying to be a dungeon master yourself? Oh, uh, I would definitely like to. Like, I would definitely need to play a lot more D and D specifically if to run D and D. I think like I I still feel like I'm a very new player in a lot of ways. But yeah, I would definitely if I had the time outside of writing, you know, like seven to nine comics at a time, I would love to put together a campaign. Well. We don't want you to stop working, though. I know, right? <laughs> but, yeah, but, I mean, the, the, pay, the paying writing always comes first, yeah. for better or 
years. But um, I mean, for now, I'm content to just play with some amazing, amazing DMs and see what they're bringing. I wonder if you're uh, have you well have you ever uh, worked with a writing partner on doing screenplay writing or or, or comic book writing? Yeah, I've definitely uh, co-wrote comics with folks. Um, uh, probably most. Uh, prominently Steve Orlando. I did a number of DC books with him. I wrote, I co-wrote five issues of Supergirl, which is a book I'm actually going to be solo writing in December. Cool. And uh, co-wrote a couple of uh, Justice League Rebirth issues too. Awesome. So I, I feel like that's something that Dungeons and Dragons could bring to the forefront too, is, is people that you have a good collaborative working relationship with uh, uh, around the table, which is different characters telling the story together, I feel like it could translate pretty well to, you know, throwing different ideas out there and, and, and writing together on something. Oh, yeah. I mean, in a way, it is like a writer's room. You're just making the story there rather than, you know, planning it for another medium. Yeah. Yeah. I've been, uh, I've been listening to a lot of uh, John August and, and Craig Mazin's uh, Script Notes podcast, uh, D&D fans, of course, uh, through and through. Um, but the, uh, the process of writing is, is, is one that's always uh, fascinated me uh, and the craft of it. Um, and I wonder if there's, there's other things that you've learned, whether from doing the, uh, the uh, science fiction horror role-playing games that you were, you were playing to start or, or D&D now. Like what, um, you know, how, how has it informed and changed you as a writer? I mean, I think one of the great things is when you have a character you've been playing for a long time and you still sort of manage to surprise your DM with the choices you make, even though you see it as being fully in character and it seems almost obvious to you. So I think there's something there about learning how to, you know, have a long running character arc, but still find ways to put surprises in. Mm. And that, that, that's something that's like jumped out at me in games recently, you know, because some of the sci-fi and horror games I'm in, you know, we've been playing some of the same characters for five or six years. And the fact that I can still do things with this very long running character that, again, seem like the obvious character choice to me, but it still surprises other people at the table. It's like that's really what you want to do when you're writing, right? You want to have the investment in the characters but not have everything come across as obvious. It's a weird fine line, right? You have to not be predictable and formulaic and, and uh, you know, calling on too many tropes, but you don't want it to feel unearned at the same time. Yeah. So it very much is like looking at how the groundwork is laid out and the choices that came before for your character to see where it leads them, you know, in the current state. That's awesome. I love how that, and then you get to see that play out in real time. Like you get to see the reactions and, and uh, uh, the collaborative nature happen immediately at the table. Yep. Yeah. It's, it's so much fun. <laughs> what does it mean to be a contributing writer to an anthology, to a comic anthology? Are you submitting a, like original work to the anthology or is it a themed anthology and you're, you're pulling from canon of, of existing, an existing property? Um, I think it really depends on the anthology. Like the very early work I did uh, was for mostly anthologies that were funded on Kickstarter. Uh, the most prominent one was one called Womanthology that at the time set the record for uh, the money earned by a comic Kickstarter. And that was all women, and it was for charity, 
and the only theme was heroic. So you just had to find a way to work a character being heroic or the idea of what heroism is into the story. So it was a very sort of loose, uh, you know, guidelines for what you wanted to write. And then I've, you know, contributed to anthology issues for Marvel at comics and Star Wars. And that, you know, has much more strict guidelines because, you know, you have a certain number of pages and you need to tell this sort of story with this sort of character. So it really does vary from project to project. Cool. Yeah, I was curious about the womanthology one that you contributed to. That that was actually uh, my very first published story, and half of it was drawn by an artist uh, named Fiona Staples. Who heard uh, of her? <laughs> yeah, the, the exact the exact same day Womanthology came out, a book called Saga had its first issue drop. Wow! And as as soon as I read that, I'm like, well, I'm never working with Fiona again. She's <laughs> she's way too fancy for me now. <laughs> and then of course she ended up drawing the first uh, cover for Critical Role. So we did get to work together again. That's awesome. How did you end up working together that first time? Uh, so Womanthology had a mix of newcomers to comics and professionals. And I was someone who was at the time a newcomer. And if you were a writer who wanted to try to work with one of the professional artists, you had to send a pitch for what your story idea was. So basically Fiona picked my pitch out of a stack of pitches from writers, which is still like a, one of the coolest things I think that's happened to me in comics, despite wow. all like things I've done ever since. Like the fact that a professional writer saw like a couple sentences and was like, oh, this, this is what I want to draw, sure. Um, yeah, that still blows me away. That's really cool. In some ways, you know, she, she was the one that gave you your shot. Yeah. In that way. Oh, right? yeah, for sure. And I always try to make sure she gets credit, even though she doesn't need it. She's way fancier than I am. But <laughs> Well, we yeah. love talking to her and working with her for, for D&D Live. Uh, it, it was this great happenstance that it occurred. And I think everybody here was just like, I can't believe this is actually happening. Uh, so we, you know, we, we felt that over here as well. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah, and I mean, I, she she loves D and I know she and her husband, and uh, I've played. I haven't played D and D with them yet, but I did play a game of Dread uh, last time I was visiting Calgary. So, good stuff. Um, yeah. So, when you were talking about your friend group that got uh, you playing RPGs, uh, non D and D ones, and it's okay for you to you know, talk talk through that, but. Uh, I'm I'm just curious about what how that group got formed and if you had uh, you know reservations getting into playing tabletop games or you know how, how did how did the pitch for that get you involved in it? Well, I'd, I mean, I'd actually played some stuff back when I was in college and grad school, but you know, it was always sort of toward the end of the year, so it was never something that went long enough to be an ongoing campaign. And then I'd moved to LA and didn't have any friends who were playing RPGs at the time. And then I was at a party and a, friend, a newer friend, someone I knew somewhat casually, mentioned he was looking to start a Star Wars RPG. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, I, I've missed playing RPGs from the, you know, the little I played. I had a lot of fun and I love Star Wars. So I'd love to play. And that's, that game is still going on now, six and a half years later. Wow, really? Yeah, and my friend Jackson, I mentioned earlier, I actually met him in the game. Like, our characters became best friends. And after that, we became, like, sort you know, real-life best friends. So. Aw. 
In a D&D game that Greg and I played in, we were litter mates. And then Greg decided he didn't want to play that character anymore, and now we're not friends anymore. Now we're not friends at all, except for <laughs> pretending well, I mean, here on the microphone. You, you cover it up very well. I wouldn't believe that you were. It's because we are so. theater majors. <laughs> it's acting. I, I, believe, it's I acting. believe the acting. The acting is very convincing. Thank you. Thank you very much. To be fair, I didn't know you were going to be playing the, that character again. And really? Then when I, yeah. I, I think we talked about it. Oh, dang it. All right. It's my fault. Okay. Yeah, but. Daryl, lost in Chult. I will find you one day. It's really Bart's fault for not continuing that, it uh, that is. campaign. And then Nathan's fault because he didn't continue with us either. That's true. It, I, the whole thing about getting adults together to play uh, RPGs on a regular basis, it's for real. Like, that's the real end game of D&D. That's the, the, the big bad monster at the end. It is. Time. Time. We all fight time. Even here and in the I, office. I'm, honestly, that's why I really like long-running campaigns because I feel like there's so much inertia behind it. Even if there's, like, a few months you can't get together and play, you know people will be back just because there's so much history and weight behind it. Right. Yeah, you got to hit that that tipping point for it to be something you know, like, we're going to keep doing this. Yeah. We yeah. didn't reach yeah. that tipping point. We never reached that tipping point. We didn't. Yeah, but, but. you just got to do it. And if you can't, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's something that everybody battles with about all their time. But, like, you know, you just got to stay as consistent as you can. Yeah. And not, I mean, I don't know. Everybody's got a little bit of social anxiety in their head. And they're like, oh, I don't feel like hanging out tonight. But I always try to push myself to be like, no, it's... It's important to it's continue good. this 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 game because otherwise, if you don't, it just months will go by and all of a sudden, it dissipates. That's right. Yeah, it's it's a, you got to find that balance between. Well, I don't want to bug people, but you know, you really do. You want to be like, so hey, when can we plan the next session? Are you free this weekend? You know, it's you got to put that effort in, even though it's not always a comfortable thing to do. Because I, and I get that as someone with a lot of social anxiety, but. Yeah. I, my, my love of playing RPGs outweighs my social anxiety to the point where a friend mentions, uh, you know, like, oh, I was thinking of doing this or a one shot. I'm just like, can I play? Can yeah. I play? <laughs> time to get in. Time to jump in. Yep. You know, and a lot of it is like, you know, akin to writing projects, you know, especially if, if people are not, uh, you know, being paid or there's not like a deadline that's external. But having that like internal deadline of like, I got to continue to work and noodle on this idea or it's just going to go away into nothingness. And yeah, and I, that's something I know I need to get better at. And I obviously have a lot of deadlines with the number of projects I work on, but I also need to figure out how to, you know, get stuff done when it's not fueled by panic. Yeah. <laughs> but panic <laughs> but gets so much stuff it's done. It's such a good motivator. Pa- panic is such a good motivator. Really I don't know is. how healthy it is, but it works. Gets <laughs> it done. I, uh, when, I, when I had my, my theater company in New York, I called it Deadline because was oh, the, no. it was the only way I could get things done was to have a deadline. <laughs> Yes, that's a good idea. That's yeah. a, it just sounds so stressful, though, if that's, like, right there in the name. It's, like, <laughs> it's always looming over you. Well, the, the funny part is is that uh, I think I made, like, two plays with that, with that company and then went away. So uh, Too stressful. The name itself did not help it. No. Yeah, I, w- I was in an improv group when I moved to L.A. because you're required to be in an improv group when you move to L.A. <laughs> and uh, our name, I think, did not help us continue because uh, they they to be fair the name was chosen while i was out of town at a wedding but it was snot sexy and i'm oh. like that's not even a good pun no. and it's gross I'm, yeah i'm down with that yeah. though i'm, I'm down with snots <laughs> i am too apparently <laughs> our earlier intro you yeah, were snot was, sexy when you did that that was not sexy <laughs> that was not cool <laughs> I guess I am kind of into that pun. <laughs> but yeah, not for an improv troupe. 
Yeah, I would have I would have gone with snot funny, you know, if we had to do a snot thing, because, you know, a goal of an improv group is to be funny. So at least you get the irony in there. I right. don't know. There should be more uh, uh, dramatic improv groups out there. <laughs> I guess that's well, I guess that's what you could call RPG uh, streaming yeah. shows are. Yeah, sometimes. I mean, yeah, it's long, it's long form dramatic improv, really. Yeah. Unfortunately, there's, those aren't, uh, you know, selling out UCB uh, uh, performances right now. Just the dramatic <laughs> ones. Right. That would be kind of awesome, though. Um, do you think that the, the fact that, I mean, I think this is an obvious one, but the fact that your background in that you're, that you, that you want to be a storyteller that you have since you were a child, is that what drew you into RPGs to begin with? Did you, was it that part of, playing an RPG that you really liked the most? I mean, I think so, yeah. I mean, I was I was always one of the kids that played pretend a lot, and I think that's something that, you know, we lose as adults. And the fact that it's like, oh, you get to play pretend again, but it's okay, it's for adults now because there's rules and math. You know? <laughs> it's a nice way to make something that we all really loved when we were younger, you know, acceptable as adults. And to be fair, you know, it's like I do like all the strategy and having to know the rules and, you know, working within the confines of that structure. But, yeah, it is really all about, you know, playing pretend and telling stories and, you know, just making that work as an adult. That's kind of thing I go to when people are like, I don't really know how D&D works. And then I just be like, hey, did you ever play pretend when you were a kid? You know, and invariably say yes. yes. I don't know if I've met I anybody who's yes. like, no. Never. Goodbye, sir. I was, always, I was a very serious <laughs> toddler. In Mother Russia, it pretend with you. You do not have my nose. It is right here on my face. <laughs> um, Sorry. <laughs> you do not have my nose? I just got it that. It is not my nose. <laughs> it's not my nose. It's not my nose. <laughs> um, but do you... Do you do you ever encounter that when 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 you meet folks who don't play and like how how would you, how do you describe it to to uh, normals? <laughs> no, well, I, actually, I mean, like most of the people I know are nerds in some way or another, so I feel like most people I know get it. And honestly, like a lot of my friends who don't really play RPGs have very recently, like you know, had their first session or you know, want actually do want to jump in. So I think that's it's kind of cool that it's. I don't want to say it's trendy, but at least it's out there in the zeitgeist enough that people who maybe hadn't thought about it before are willing to jump in and give it a try. And I think um, that's due to people like, you know, people like you and people like, you know, we mentioned Critical Role a lot, but even just, you know, the general uh, excitement to tell stories, I think it has a lot to do with people wanting to, you know, not be in our world very much right now. I, I mean, that's true. There is the element of escapism, but it's something that you still have control over in a way that you don't when you're just sitting down to watch a movie yeah. or, you know, even play a video game where you have some level of control, but, you know, the story is laid out. It's just the path you choose. Uh, whereas, you know, in RPGs, you're there building the story from the start. Yeah, it is true. And it's kind of a safe, believe it or not, um, it's it's a safe social activity if you do have a little social anxiety because it's not just like, okay, we're just going to sit here and I have to come up with small talk and we have to think about things to talk about. Oh my God, I hope they're having fun. Um, but because you have a game in front of you. you have, now you have a thing that you're all focused on and doing and participating in together. There's a structure to it. Yeah. 
Yeah, and there's a you, you can hide behind a character to a yeah. certain extent. So there's like a layer that sort of keeps you safe if you're not necessarily comfortable in the setting. Yeah, that's why we're pushing it as hard as we can yeah. for all of our social it's activities for going everybody. forward. It's to help you. <laughs> it's for your own good. Have you ever used your uh, uh, RPG playing with uh, like with your writing? Like maybe you're like trying out a new idea or trying to see how a character would really respond to the type of thing. Do you ever incorporate or do a little like of your own kind of play testing? Right. I mean, testing? I actually the the first time I played D and D ever, uh, I. Pull, I made a bard that was sort of based off of a character from a fantasy story idea I'd had just oh. to sort of see how that would play out. Yes. And it, ve- it very quickly became like focused on the game more than the story idea. But, you know, that was something that, you know, I hadn't really touched that story idea for a while because I'd been, you know, swamped with, uh, again, paying projects. But, you know, getting to go back and sort of touch base with that character idea, I think, uh, you know, sort of sparked it and kept it still going in my mind and uh that that star wars game i mentioned before i definitely named star wars characters after the players in the game oh really yeah uh darth maul murdered my gm so (laughs) wow good old darth that's a good legacy he thought he thought that was cool he didn't uh he didn't take offense to that but (laughs) so you have that kind of freedom when you're writing for like star wars I mean, to an extent, when I'm adding new characters or new aliens or new planets, I mean, I do get to name them. Uh, The story group, you know, sort of approves everything. And at least one of the people who I named a character after they knew and they were excited that, you know, she was uh, uh, Amy Radcliffe, who does a number of things for StarWars.com. So they were they thought it was super cool. I was naming a character after her. So and, you know, look, if you can't put your friends in Star Wars, what's the point? (laughs) <laughs> what's the point of life what is the point <laughs> if you can't put yeah. your friends I mean, in Star Wars that's kind of awesome so like you you have created aliens and monsters for Star Wars yes that's amazing uh, they, I, and every time uh, a new issue comes out with something new like if I check Wikipedia like fairly early in the day there's already an entry for it which is I I'm, man fans are just cool that is so cool I love how there's this this uh, level of fandom that, you know, and attention to things, right? Like the day that something comes out, it's already a part of the fabric of, of everyone's shared storytelling universe. I mean, that, uh, that RPG show I was on, Vast, uh, because it was running uh, on Geek and Sundry's channel, we obviously had a, uh, you know, a lot of critters who t- tuned in and we got fan art, like, from our first episode and, you know, having being new to this space, we were not prepared for that. It's like, wait, they are, wait, they already drew the characters. Wait, but this just started what's going on. (laughs) So, uh, but you know, when you have like a fan base, it's so primed to create the way that the critters are, you know, anyone who sort of ventures into that space, that's going to be their experience. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but Vast was the RPG that Emmett Fury was involved with. Yes. Yes. He was one of the writers. Yes, it was a, it was an RPG with a writer's room. Uh, basically, each session was uh, an episode, so each writer so would sort of write the module for that episode. I remember when we went to to lunch with Emmett at GaryCon, and he was telling us all the stories of, right. of how you guys that's have put that all together. That's uh, why it's familiar. Yeah, it was. It yeah, was he's, he's he's been running a home game set in that world uh, for the past year or so, which I'm also playing in. 
I, I am uh, amazed at his skill at being able to balance. Well, there's like 30 different players in that game. Or something. Oh, yeah, it's bonkers. And, there, and there's actually a Discord where people can talk in character with each other between sessions. So that's like a whole other thing to manage. And I think he had like, he has it well into the double digits on PCs he's dealing with for that game too. It's It's a lot. I love it. I love having a fabric like that. It almost feels like, you know, you, you need your own uh, uh, wiki to be able to, yes, <laughs> and, and Discord, right, and all the things to be able to keep track of all of it. And I'm hoping more people get inspired to do that for their, for their D&D campaigns. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, but that's one of the fun things about, you know, building a world is sometimes the world just grows way beyond what you expected. It's like it really takes a life of its own. And it's like, this is this is a lot. I wasn't expecting it to be this much. <laughs> and I'm pleasantly surprised. Hopefully. Yes. <laughs> and hopefully. then you're like, wait, this is a lot of work, too. But, uh, you know, hopefully you're doing it because you love it and you're OK and you have the time. Um, so you you're you're working on seven to 14 different projects right now that are going to be coming out soon? Something like that, yeah. Um, do you want me to list, start listing things? I, it, yeah. yeah I mean, well, well know. you know, give us the highlights. Give us the ones that you think you're the most excited about, you want people to, to know about. Well, obviously, the Critical Role Vox Machina Origins, which is currently coming out, uh, issue number three just dropped this week. Oh, cool. Uh, I, as mentioned earlier, I'm starting writing Supergirl in December. And I also currently am working on Harley Quinn and Poison Ivy for DC. Uh, over at Marvel, I just wrapped on a new Star Wars series called TIE Fighter. So that should be out in trade soon. And I'm working on Web of Black Widow. Uh, I just had the second issue of my two-issue run on Star Trek Year 5 with the aforementioned Jackson Lansing uh, as one of the showrunners nice. for that comic. Uh, Doctor Who from Titan has been coming out, and there's a holiday special uh, coming out in a couple months around the holidays, not surprisingly. Um, <laughs> that's a pretty good list. I feel like that's a good uh, list. Yeah. That's amazing. Uh, I'm excited about pretty much all of what you just said. Uh, uh, Star Trek Year 5 was something that um, uh, I've, I've been hearing about a bunch, and so I can't wait to pick that up. I think that's such an interesting idea to go back to what's happening in Year 5 of the, the original series mission. And that that was a that was a cool one because we actually did put together a proper writers room for it and broke down the whole first year of the story in one day Ooh. with all the writers there. And uh, again, you know, it's a Jackson and his co-writer Colin Kelly who I've both played RPGs with, so I have that experience of building stories with them and getting to do it in a very professional setting was really fun. Did you incorporate any of the new insights into Spock's character from uh, season two of Discovery? Uh, not really. I didn't. Uh, I think this was. I'm trying to remember if the writers' room was really before that came out or not. Because mm. uh, it was. It was like at the very beginning of the year. Uh, right. But. Yeah, I mean, it's it's always sort of a balance of when you're working on something that's still an ongoing franchise. Obviously, some of the story beats uh, in one medium might end up, you know, coming out before you can plan for it in another medium, but it's all trying to make everything work together. And, you know, obviously we can adjust as things go on and we get notes from CBS for each issue. So that's really, it's, yeah, it, it's, it, it it's, is it's fascinating cool. when all of it can feels like it's informing each other, right? Yeah. So uh, that you can even look at the things that happen in, in one medium and it informs uh, the character to have 
more impact for their decisions or you're like, oh my God, while that was happening, all of this that's being told in another medium was also weighing on that character's mind. And it, when it works, it feels like this, you know, you're just increasing that web of the, the wiki of all the information, uh, emotional or not, involved in it. And it's, it's fascinating to me. And I mean, that's that's one of the great things about comics, just like with these big like superhero universes. And that's the thing that sort of drew me into reading them as a kid. It's like well, Batman and Superman do their own stuff, but then sometimes they hang out with each other and deal with even bigger things. And that's so cool. You know, it's like as a kid, that's just kind of mind blowing. I love that now uh, that level of detail and fandom is is approaching uh, RPGs and fantasy. And uh, I can't wait for it to explode even more into the comics world. And you're a big part of that. Thank you. And yeah, I mean, that is really cool because you can go out and you can buy novels and you get new source books and it's just, it all ties together so beautifully. And if you're running a game, it's like you can choose to pull from all that or as much as you want or to build something entirely new. Yeah. And with Baldur's Gate uh, Descent into Avernus just out now, that impacts, you know, people's memories of uh, playing the old Baldur's Gate games and then the new one coming from Larian and how that'll interact with it. So you're right, that that web is is, is continuing even now. Yeah, uh, it's so cool. I, I just love being a part of that sort of thing, honestly. Well, uh, we love that you love it. <laughs> and that you're a part <laughs> of it. Oh, well, thank you. Uh, how can people uh, find out about all of these myriad of projects and, and uh, find out what's happening next for you? Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at J-O-D-Y underscore H-O-U-S-E-R. I, I always spell out my name because there's three spellings for my first and last name. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> And then I'm also on Instagram at Mind Eclipse, all one word. Mind Eclipse. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> also, the spooky. domain of my incredibly out of date website that I will update someday, hopefully. When you get back to when blogging. <laughs> yeah. When you want to go to your I, live I journal. I blog back in the day. It's like you joke, but that, that I did that, that was for a thing. Yeah. 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 Uh, well, thank you for joining us, Jody Hauser, MD. And. Uh, <laughs> Oh, no. You had to go there. <laughs> I had to because I was like thinking of the different spellings yeah. of Hauser. I'm like, oh, right. Duh, that one. That's That one. <laughs> yep. <laughs> uh, well, uh, thank you for having me. Uh, always fun to chat D&D. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Anytime. And hopefully our, uh, our paths will cross again soon. And I can't wait to pick up uh, all of these projects and start devouring them uh, with my mouth. Right. Well, <laughs> that's, uh, that's, that's it. a, it's, it's good for a high fiber diet. So. <laughs> you need more pulp. Need more pulp. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much, Jody. Thanks, Jody. Good talking to you. What an amazing interview oh with uh, Jody Hauser. Boy, she really saved this episode. She really did. <laughs> Single-handedly. From our, from our intros and banter, uh, she brought it and gave it some gravitas. Yes. That was well needed. Well needed. Thank you. She's amazing. Yes. Uh, good stuff. Good insights yeah. all around. I want to know more. And now I feel like I want to I want to start uh, getting more into comics. Were you ever a comics person? No, but I feel like I could be. I, you're right. It's yeah. a whole like new form of art for me because I never I never did that when I was a kid. So it's nice to yep. to jump into it now and become more of a fan yeah, about the sequential artwork of it. We got a lot like, of it's a lot catching like, up to do. It's a lot like screenwriting or or, or playwriting to a certain extent. Exactly. Yeah. And she is a playwriter. That's it. A playwright. Playwright, play not a playwright. Play yes, very. That different. sounded weird. With GHD too, because that's because right. we're cool. Right. Those playwrights. Right. Um, so, is there other fun stuff we wanted to talk about that's happening in Dungeons and Dragons world before we close this one out? Shelley Mazanoble, I'm looking uh, at you. So much. So I mean, much. We already talked about. It. 
We already talked about all the cool things. <laughs> Battle for Baldur's Gate. Yes. And Dungeons and Dragons versus Rick and Marty. Yes. And all the other fun stuff. And all the other fun stuff. The secret sauce that is being created. So much. Do you have any stuff you haven't announced? Many things. Yeah. That I, I thought. For, for 2020 and beyond. But 2019. Yes. Uh, no, I think we've announced everything for okay. 2019. Um, but one thing we haven't talked about yet is the Eberron Rising from the Last War. Right. That is also coming out the same day that Dungeons and Dragons versus Rick and Morty is coming out. That's a big day. We have uh, been talking through what's happening with Eberron with some of the lore things that are uh, going on, as well as a new cover. We have a new standard cover that we're really excited about. Um, and if you're interested in learning about the decision process behind Swapping out the cover from what we announced with out in August. We have a video that me and Jeremy Crawford in this very room. No way. We're talking to each other uh, and explaining all of the fun stuff that went on there, uh, as well as folks who have purchased the Wayfinder's Guide to Eberron, the digital release that came out, and what they'll get updated also on November 19th. Um, so go watch that video. It's on the Dungeons & Dragons YouTube channel. Uh, and incidentally, more folks, head out to the Dungeons & Dragons YouTube channel. That's where everything that we... Broadcast here on twitch.tv slash dnd makes its way on there, plus a lot of other fun stuff that we will be dropping soon, including uh, things like Jason Charles Miller, uh, an amazing musician, yes. went on tour. Now he's using that tour to go to a whole bunch of game stores all around no the country and interviewing people and getting really new stuff about that. So look for that. That'll be coming oh my God. exclusively I to our DD YouTube channel. Want to see that. And there's going to be, of course, you know, the award-winning stream of many eyes. All the content from there is up there, including stuff also from D&D Live. That's all about Descent into Avernus. So if you're getting into what's happening in Baldur's yeah. Gate, uh, that's a good way to jump in to all the fun stuff that we were talking about that weekend all the way back in May. Can there's you imagine? That was a long time ago. It's crazy. Yeah, that um, So yes, make mm. it happen. It is time to get out of here, I think. Shelly. Is it? That there's this pile of rubble well before we do that we want to make sure people know how they can ask you questions oh yeah um and then we can you know drop kick the ceiling and let's let it all loose do that maybe if you're on twitter you can find me at shelly moo that's where you're at i'm at greg tito if you want to find out everything about dungeons and dragons well dragon plus is where to go. There was a new issue that just came out, issue 27, lots of content about Baldur's Gate Descent to Avernus, like uh, more than 10, I think there's 20 pieces of content in that free application. Uh, For those of you who already have it, there is a new update to the app, so it's a little bit different, more streamlined. Uh, We are going to be improving the archives, so all the issues are going to be uh, updated to this new format slowly over time. Uh, I think we have just the last two issues up there now, and then the first issue of Dragon Plus, so it's a great way to revisit when that app came out, what we were talking about, I believe in 2015. Uh, I don't understand why you don't have Dragon Plus. I don't understand either. Like, it's everything. And there's maps, there's tons of insight, there's lots of fun things. real-time updates, too. It aggregates everything. It aggregates everything. And go check out uh, dragonmag.com if you don't want to access it through the Dragon Plus app, although we do suggest that the Dragon Plus app is the best way to do it. The way to do it. Um, Well, I also want to give a shout-out to Ryan Marth, who is our audio engineer 
engineer and producer yeah. for Dragon Talk. We love you, Ryan. Also, Lisa Carr, thank you for Yay. helping us uh, produce and put this podcast together. Pelham Green for Woo. being there for the live stream and making things happen on that front. And uh, to my co-host, Shelly Mazzanobo, for and being awesome and all the you, time. And to you, Tito, for also being awesome. We lift each other up and throw them down. Into a pile of debris. And that debris is made of lots of rocks that are going to fall on. Oh, God, I put them all out. <laughs>